Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 14 on Inferno, and we're just ready to start the eighth circle of hell. Now, that makes it sound like we are right on pace, uh, you know, most of the way through, right? We're, we're seven ninths of the way through hell already, so we must be quite near to the end of the book, just on schedule as predicted. Um, uh, that's only if you don't actually pay attention to how far the way we are through the book. Uh, of course, there's a reason uh, that the eighth and ninth circles of hell take a long time. And there's, of course, it's primarily the fault of the eighth circle. Um, Malabolgia has many different sections, by far the most of any, by far the most... Uh, um, completely subdivided, or not completely, they're all completely, they're either subdivided or they're not, um, uh, thoroughly, intensely subdivided of all of the circles of hell. Uh, and so that's one of the things uh, that we are going to, uh, uh, that we're going to be focusing on, looking at what do we learn uh, from the circle of fraud? Um, what is interesting, even about the simple fact that there are so many different elements uh, of fraud that uh, that uh, get their own treatment uh, in this way. So uh, anyway, so that's right. Totally, I agree. There's theoretically the circles are getting smaller as we go down. Right. And yet the text is getting fatter and fatter all the way through. So anyway, uh, this is going to be uh so I'm going to be looking forward as we uh, go through the eighth circle here to be thinking about fraud and the nature of fraud and fraudulent malice. Remember, we had malice and then malice by force and malice by fraud. Um, and of course, the eighth circle is only half of that. Remember, it's malice against strangers, whereas the ninth circle is malice against those who trust you. Um, uh, so uh, that's the <clears throat> the sort of category, uh, the larger category there, the you know, sort of subcategory that we're now going to get these 10 different things, uh, uh, which are all kind of under that heading and be looking at their punishments and the kinds of people that we meet and um, all uh, all kinds of things going on here. So uh, this will be uh, the beginning of a fun little <clears throat> sort of subunit here in the eighth circle. The Malabolgia has always been my favorite <clears throat> part. Like, if there's a section of hell that's my favorite part, it's it's always been the Malabolgia. Um, I think because there's, there's a lot of variety, which is itself really interesting. Um, but anyway, we will... Um, uh, uh, we will see what we see. Uh, but first, before I... Um, uh, before we continue. Just a brief pause uh, to do an announcement. Uh, Mythmoot is coming. I announced Mythmoot last week, and I, I, I foreboded the coming of Mythmoot. Uh, registration is now officially open for Mythmoot, so remember, we're going to make a final determination as to whether or not we're going to have any you know live in-person component of Mythmoot at the end of March. But you can register now for either Mootcast or Moothub. Moothub being the, the live synchronous, I'm going to be there all day and gonna uh, get a chance to you know be interacting with folks and be real you know a part of the uh, of the of the synchronous community there during the conference um, that's what moot hub is and mootcast is the sort of more asynchronous you can pop in and out to the live broadcast if you want to you can get the recordings of the whole um, but if you can't really be a part of the conference you know uh, hour by hour and day by day uh, then mootcast is probably your your better call um, and so remember you can go ahead and sign up for 
for those because we're doing those no matter what. We're not we're not going to cancel that or change that. Those things are definitely happening. Whatever we choose to do, whether we keep it entirely digital or whether we make it into a hybrid thing. Um, and if we do make it into a hybrid thing, then everybody who registers for Moot Hub will be given the opportunity if they want to uh, to upgrade. So we will we will see uh, uh, what happens and how that goes. But for now, our digital enrollment uh, options are open and uh, we are uh, uh, we are excited about that. Looking forward to uh, MythMoot. The dates, just to remind you, are June 24th to 27th. Uh, so back to our, our sort of old time. We ended up <clears throat> last year in the, you know, whole pandemic onset circumstances bumping it up to August but we're we're back to the end of June uh, this time um, and absolutely Arthur you can plan a presentation uh, uh, the call for papers is there on the MythMoot page so go to signumuniversity.org slash MythMoot you should be able to get there uh, through the Signum University uh, <clears throat> uh, homepage and um, uh, so yeah you can submit proposals uh, and don't worry like we'll be doing hybrid like even if we do, you know, an in-person component and you can't, it doesn't mean you have to be there in person in order to present. We'll, we'll do hybrid presenters as well. So, uh, so again, like all, you know, full speed ahead with what we're planning. The only question is whether we're going to be able to layer something on top of that or not. Uh, so, uh, so that's the thing. So, um, yeah, yeah. So the theme, the theme is the world ahead, as in home is behind, the world ahead, and there are many paths to tread. Uh, we're going to be thinking about the future and thinking about other people thinking about the future. Um, uh, we l want to um, think about, uh, you know, we, doesn't, we don't only have to talk about hopeful views of the future, but of course, uh, thinking about the world ahead and the world to come is... Uh, uh, is what we're uh, is what we're focusing on for for MythMoot this year. So, just wanted to invite folks. Um, good to see so many of you. I know you know I see many people on the list here. I know I ran into this past weekend at TexMoot. That was a great deal of fun. Um, sorry I couldn't be with you guys. I know there's the whole weather thing. And Devora, you're just saying if I had come to Texas this year, I might have been stuck there. Maybe so. Um, Would have been worth it though. Totally worth it. Um, but uh, it probably just have driven home, but <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's <laughs> Serena says, wait, it's possible to have an optimistic view of the future. I have it on uh, on uh, on 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 good authority that that is possible. In fact, um, yes. And of course, how uh, uh, also uh, how literature of the past has envisioned the world of the future. You know, that's it's not just looking towards our future as well. So anyway, that's our topic. Uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. Anyway, please do go. Uh, you can read more. You can read more about our presenters. You can read, you know, our, our main speakers. You can read more about our call for papers and the instructions and, and the email address to send proposals and all that kind of thing. So uh, MythMoot season is finally come and I can't wait. Um, all right. Let us jump back into the text then. We were on Jerion's back, you will recall, last time. Um, and uh, we were looking at the ways in which Dante very, um, I want to say insistently, I'm not quite sure that's exactly the right word, but um, pointedly, uh, dramatically, uh, 
I don't know. Um, but uh, anyway, drew attention, like sort of connected himself, his action as a poet, the work that he is in the midst of writing um, with fraud itself, right? His allegory um, with, you know, th sort of thinking about the, the lines between uh, uh, allegory and fraud, poetry and fraud, um, poetry and fiction, what he's doing in his commedia, in his comedy, um, and uh, what Phaeton and Icarus and perhaps even Arachne, as we were discussing, did. Um, uh, those were um, uh, those were some really interesting elements uh, of uh, his trip down. That was like our transition right down into fraud. And Jerrion is gone uh, by the time we get down to the bottom. Um, but uh, so let's um, let's let's go straight to it. There is a place in hell called Malabolja, made all of stone the color of crude iron, as is the wall that makes its way around it. Right in the middle of this evil field is an abyss, a broad and yawning pit, whose structure I shall tell in its due place. The belt, then, that extends between the pit and that hard steep wall's base is circular. Its bottom has been split into ten valleys. Just as, where moat on moat surrounds a castle in order to keep guard upon the walls, the ground they occupy will form a pattern, so did the valleys here form a design, and as such, sorry, and as such fortresses have buildings, <laughs> and as such fortresses have bridges running right from their thresholds towards the outer bank, so here, across the banks and ditches, ditches, ridges ran from the base of that rock wall until the pit that cuts them short and joins them all. Okay, so he's at the base of the wall. So remember, there was the steep cliff that went down from the seventh circle down into the eighth circle, right? And there is um, a, yawn, a broad and yawning pit right in the middle of the field that is formed at the bottom of that cliff is a broad and yawning pit. That's the ninth circle, right? That's the that's the final, the deepmost place, and that's why he says, "Whose structure I shall tell in its due place." We're not there yet, right? That's the ninth circle. So the eighth circle is sort of the ledge between the wall that comes down and the round pit that's in the middle uh, of this plane. But the plane, of course, is split into ten valleys. So you've got this flat plane with a roundness in the middle, and there are these circular pits like like uh, concentric moats, as he says, uh, around a fortress. And just as those fortresses will have bridges that will be able to extend across all of the moats, right? Um, so too, there are these radial bridges that go so from where he's standing with his back against the wall, there's these series of <clears throat> pockets, right? These series of trenches, ten trenches uh, that you know, they're, and they're circular. They go all the way around, right? And there's the bridge, the bridges that go straight across. So he's going to go across the bridges, uh, uh, you know, radially, right? Looking down, and he's going to make some occasional side trips to actually travel down into the uh, uh, into the, the the pockets, right? Into the trenches uh, to see more closely the folks who are down there. Though some of them he doesn't want to get any closer to, especially the first one. Um, but anyway. Uh, some of them he's gonna, um, especially like the fo folks with their feet sticking up who are here behind me, which is the third pocket. Uh, and uh, you can see by my uh, background um, image here, uh, 
that I'm once again being slightly optimistic uh, that we're going to not only complete uh, uh, Canto 18, uh, but that we are going to uh, get to Canto 19. So we'll see. Anyway, uh, so that's the... That's what he. So I want. I want to make sure everyone's on the same page, right? So he's going to be kind of crossing over and looking down into each trench as he goes across towards the edge of the, towards the edge of that yawning, that broad and yawning pit, which is the ninth circle. Now, a couple things to. So having sort of reviewed, make sure everybody's on the same page as far as what he's physically describing. Look at some of the things that he says about this. There are several things that are kind of interesting. One is the fortress thing, right? It's not just that he compares the pockets uh, to moats, right? The trenches uh, to moats surrounding a fortress. Um, That itself, of course, is very interesting. Moats, like it's a defensive structure. Um, If the Malabolgia are moats, then it's the night then what is at the center of them right is uh, is like what they're protecting like the, there are obstacles on the way towards the ninth circle um, and it's almost it's almost like an inversion of a castle almost right like you've got these moats and then instead of walls of a keep on the inside of all the moats you have instead a pit on the inside of all the moats so it's like it's like a it's a, it's like a castle, but it's like an innie instead of an Audi, right there in the middle, uh, in the middle of the uh, of of the of the moats. Um, the fortification thing. I'm not sure what quite to make of it, but you'll notice that even before that, um, we have references like the references to the the yawning pit. Uh, the 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 wall's base, um, its bottom has been split into ten valleys, um, and the valleys form a design. We're told, right? Um, banks, ditches, ridges. Berolini points this out in her commentary as well. But I do think it's interesting that the landscape here. He draws attention to the fact that this is constructed landscape. Like, we haven't had bridges, exactly. We've had walls, right? We had the walls of the city of Dees and their gates. Um, But most of the landscape has been sort of natural landscape. We've had rivers, we've had waterfalls. Of course, in the seventh circle, we had deserts and we had forests and we had rivers. Um, But even before then, you know, we had... People in a landscape, whether it was the very watery and foul-smelling landscape of the third circle with the gluttonous, or you know the people rolling rocks around in the fourth circle, or the swamps, or you know whatever, um, we haven't had much in the way of architecture exactly, right? But this not only has architect bridges, like it's. I mean, it, on the one hand, it's like, well, of course there are bridges. How is you going to get across if, if there aren't bridges? Um, but we haven't had bridges or anything quite like um, bridges before. Um, and that strikes me as interesting. That is interesting that when we get down to the circle of fraud, the first thing that we see is it's really, it's quite a, it's not only constructed, a constructed landscape, but an elaborately constructed landscape. Um uh, forming a design, right, and uh, and it's it's 
quite an elaborate design, right? With the 10 concentric circles, with the radial bridge going across. Um, and, you know, we're not told that it's like, you know, neat and clean and, you know, clean lines and orderly and everything like that. It's, it's not that necessarily, but, um, um, but it's thorough. It's, it's, it is not natural. And it's not just rock fall. It's not just cliff faces. Um, it's, uh, somebody built this like with stones. Um, uh, and I don't necessarily, again, it's, you know, we know the whole thing is designed uh, uh, by God, as was described at the inscription on the gates. Um, but still, I just can't help but think that it is interesting that the circle of fraud is, in this sense, artificial. Um, and Stephen, I agree, it's not obvious why there should be bridges. I mean, it's not like it's a highway. Right. You know, that this is like the the Malabolgia bypass that everybody takes on their way down to the ninth circle. No souls who go to the ninth circle plummet there when they're chucked by Minos after he wraps his tail around them nine times. Right. So um, that's that's it, this is not a major route. In fact, how many times has this bridge been used? Ever? Virgil used it once before, must have done, right, when he went down to the Ninth Circle, because he was to, we, we, he said he went down to the Ninth Circle when he got sent down there by the sketchy uh, uh, necromancer, remember? Um, so I guess he's been down there before, and maybe that means that others have gone at some points before, but it's, this is not... Um, it's almost like these bridges are just made for Dante's benefit. Um, and... Uh, and of course, that's always a little bit interesting, especially since, um, uh, again, with the whole artificial sort of human architecture and construction coinciding with fraud. And then, of course, the way also that, you know, Dante's own work and poetry was being connected and associated with fraud uh, with Jerrion on the way down here. So, again, I just can't help but think that's all a little bit interesting. Um Gerald, I, God clearly did know that bridges would be needed. Um, but again, not often, right? This is not a popular <clears throat> tourist uh, site, I don't think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I agree, Serena. The phrase sketchy necromancers is a little bit uh, perhaps redundant. Um, there really are not very many non-sketchy uh uh, necromancers. I, I think I can agree with that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, I agree, William, that the landslide hadn't happened yet, but remember, Virgil doesn't have a body either, so I think he's a little bit um, freer in his transport. Now, maybe that means he doesn't even need to bridge, right? Uh, you know, he didn't need the landslide to get down safely from the sixth circle to the seventh circle, uh, and maybe similarly he didn't even need the bridge. Maybe he can hover. Uh, it's possible he can hover. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, right, yeah. Uh, David is, of course, recalling the attention that has been drawn to this point, to the unexpected and unusual weight of uh, um, of Dante, right, because he's got his body with him. Um, so it seems entirely possible that the bridges have indeed been constructed, uh, for Dante's convenience. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, okay, good. 
uh, Serena is asking about like in what sense is you know what uh, in in what sense is fraud unnatural um and I, I should be cautious because you're certainly right, Serena. Unnaturalness is one of the things that we were talking about, about the violence sins earlier, especially the violent against God. Um, that was one of the primary themes of the desert of the violent against God was this sort of going against the natural order as ordained by God. It's not that fraud, I think, is unnatural in that sense. Um, and... This by itself is kind of interesting to me, Serena, because um, you'd think that that, like violating the natural order of God, would be kind of a bigger deal even than defrauding a stranger. Um, you know, in as much as the one, like certainly Caponius is a very vertical sin, right? That's between him and God. Uh, and he's addressing God directly. Well, he's addressing Job, but that's pretty much addressing God, as we talked about. Um, so you'd think that, like, that sin which goes straight up to God, which is striking directly at the relationship between God and human, would be worse than a horizontal sin, right? I defrauded my neighbor. Um, and yet, that does not, in fact, seem to be the case. But anyway, when I... Um, so... I think instead of unnatural, the word I would want to stick with is artificial, because it's not unnatural in the same sense uh, that the violence against God is unnatural. Um, it's, but it is artificial in the sense that it is an artifice. It is about art. It is about craft. And of course, I can't help but remember Jerry on here. Again, there's a reason Dante was talking about his own verse and his own poetry and his own allegory, right? Because what he's doing is fraud, right? I mean, it is. He's, he's, he's making up a story. Uh, he's, he's doing a work of fiction. Um, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, but, you know, it's in this category, or at least it's potentially in this category. Um, so artifice, the making up of things, um, one could certainly say that the thing that kind of defines fraud, right, is the misuse of artifice, the misuse of human ingenuity, of human invention, right? I was about to say creativity, but we don't use that word in the Middle Ages uh, about people. Um, invention. Uh, misapplied invention. Um, so, again, it's not about being unnatural. It's about being artificial, which is not the same thing. Um, artificial can be used as an opposite to natural, but not in the same way that unnatural is an opposite to it, if you see the distinction that I'm making there. Um, yeah, yeah. It is a violence against truth, Arthur, but it's interesting. I mean, he doesn't characterize it that way, right? This is not... These are not acts of violence. It's differentiated from the acts of violence. Um, and if, so even... I mean, and it's... Once again, we're going to see overlap or, like, areas of potential overlap, as we saw before, like the, you know, with the, the, the violent in the seventh circle and the wrathful uh, in the sixth circle, right? I mean, there's, like... 
where do you, how does Minos decide, right? Which one you really belong in. Uh, if you get really angry at somebody and beat them up, does that put you into seven because you were, you know, violent against your neighbor? Or does it put you into six because you were just wrathful? Um, and similarly, there will be people here who are guilty of violence in some sense or other against other people. Um, but they're not in the violent against their neighbors. They're down here in fraud. Um, so, I mean, that certainly is another thing that we're going to be able to, uh, that we're going to be able to see. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah, William, that seems fair, uh, that it's that fraud is a deliberate use of humanity's subcreative powers to harm another person. Uh, the misuse of the thing which sets us apart from animals. Yeah, well, that's a big deal. That's a very big deal. Um, yeah, 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 it's a very big deal. Um, I mentioned the looking up into the sky thing. Didn't I mention the looking up into the... I was just reminded of this uh, because, Serena, at TextMoot, you mentioned that Peter Capaldi had done a Watership Down reading, which I'd never heard that that happened. So I immediately went out and get it and I've been listening to it. Um, and I'm in book two now. And I just got to the part where Hazel was going up Watership Down for the first time and looking at the sky and uh, uh, talking... And uh, uh, Adams was talking about how rabbits don't usually look up into the sky, which reminded me of this medieval doctrine that... Um, the looking up towards heaven, this was, that was like a truism in the Middle Ages that animals generally don't look up at the sky, whereas people do, right? People look up at the sky a lot. Uh, and this is taken to be a sort of an outward expression of the fact that, you know, animals are, they're, 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 they're entirely focused on worldly things, like that they don't have anything else, right? They don't have the same kind of spiritual connection to God that humans have, but humans do, right? So the, the sort of the looking upward, the physical looking upward uh, is a, a sort of an outward symbol of this spiritual tendency of humans to go. And so the fact that Capanius is flat on his back looking up like the blasphemers are permanently compelled uh, to, to look up um, and yet, nevertheless, deny, right? To be staring up at God and yet to deny him and yet to blaspheme him. That's, again, a sort of a dramatization of exactly what they did. They are upward-facing uh, creatures who looked up and objected. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. What about wolves howling at the moon, Sarah? That's an exception and kind of a sketchy one, <laughs> right? I mean, that's why... You know, you can't trust that. You got werewolves and stuff. Um, but, um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, what was I doing? Um, moving on. That's what I was doing. Okay. Upon the right, I saw new misery. I saw new tortures and new torturers. Filling the first of Malabolja's moats, along its bottom, naked sinners moved. To our side of the middle, facing us. Beyond that, they moved with us, but more quickly. As, in the year of Jubilee, the Romans, confronted by great crowds, contrived a plan that let the people pass across the bridge. For to one side went all who had their eyes upon the castle, heading towards St. Peter's, and to the other, those who faced the mount. Okay. So, they've descended, right? They got dropped off. We didn't get the narration of the dropping off, right? We got the flying with Jerry on, and then there they are. So they're here, and they're going to the bridge. So they're walking along the edge, 
right? Towards the so they're 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 here going around the the circumference, right? Of of and and as they're going around the circumference, they see two groups of sinners going in opposite directions, right? There's some excellent signage apparently and crowd control down there in the first pocket of the eighth circle because you've got two crowds of people, very full, right? Um, you got two crowds of people and they're all moving in opposite directions, but this is not like the fourth circle where they're running in, smashing into each other and yelling at each other. Uh, they are, they are orchestrated smoothly, right? So there's some who are, as he said, uh, to our side of the middle, they're facing us. So th- he's kind of like going upstream against them, right? But there are others who are going the same direction they are, and they won't see them until they start crossing the bridge and can, can turn and look at them coming back the other way. Um, and the comparison that he makes, um, and so I, I think, I think they're keeping the people are keeping to the right, um, uh, the right. I think that's I think that's how they. I think they they the crowd is controlled on the American uh, highway system rather than the, you know the uh, 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 you know British highway system, um, but um, anyway. Um, Yes, and Devora, you're right. Uh, notice that in order to try to convey the visual picture of this, he has to summon up a very particular, um, a very particular image. It's not normal for there to be this kind of crowd control, right? Um, uh, that's not something that anyone is used to, even in normal large cities. You have to get a special, not even just in Rome. Rome, you know, the number one pilgrimage site in the world. So it's always crowded in Rome. But even in Rome, it's only in the year of Jubilee, right? So like when there's a special extra big group of pilgrims who have come to Rome. Um, So in the year of Jubilee, um, they contrived a plan that let the people pass across the bridge, right? So to avoid pedestrian traffic jams on the bridge, they, you know, they had to do this thing where everybody kept, you know, to the right uh, in order to go past. Again, this seems like a totally normal thing from a modern perspective, but it's obviously something that he had to kind of reach for uh, in order to um, in order to um, to explain it. Um, but of course, it's also people in Rome, right? And whenever we're in Rome, uh, in the Divine Comedy or talking about Rome, uh, it's um, likely uh, that uh, we're throwing shade um, because, of course, uh, he was, Dante, not a fan of the Pope, as we'll see, perhaps, later on tonight. Um so, yeah, there were smaller urban populations than Serena. Plus, it's just like you don't have to do as much crowd. Con- I mean, you don't have to have traffic patterns as much when you have mostly pedestrians. You know, I mean, it's it's uh, it's just it's much simpler. Um, uh, so. So, yeah, I mean, it takes a lot of foot traffic and pecu- and noticing it's only passing across the bridge. Right. It's not even in the streets of Rome that they have this. Um you have to have a lot of foot traffic indeed 
uh, or some like major event where you have lots and lots of people just standing around and not moving, right, uh, in order to create traffic jams that would necessitate uh, traffic flow laws. Um, and yes, bumping into someone is generally much less deadly than cars crashing. Another reason why you don't usually worry so much about making sure that uh, uh, traffic is flowing steadily. Um, yes, yes, Arthur, I think you can throw shade in the afterlife. In fact, I suspect uh, it's easier, uh, perhaps, uh, but I'm not sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so we are given through the traffic flow. So a couple things about the traffic flow. One, we seem to have two different populations here. And I assume that this means we're getting two different shades, even, you know, without, before we're told anything, I'm assuming we're getting two different shades or flavors of the sin, right? Just as we got the, 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 the prodigal, uh, and the miserly, uh, right in the circle of avarice. Uh, so to here, I'm assuming that it's not arbitrary whether you're going the one direction or the other, right? Um, but wait a second. Why are they being so neat and orderly? Um, why? Uh, um, uh, <laughs> yes, you're right, Stephen. Minos is constantly throwing shades. You're you're right. Absolutely true about that. Um, why are they doing this? Why are they keeping in their lanes? Uh, is it just part of their like punishment? Part of their destiny? Well, it's part of their punishment, um, but they have to be compelled. Uh, to do this, not only to stay in their lanes, but also to keep moving. Um, both left and right, along the somber rock, I saw horned demons with enormous whips who lashed those spirits cruelly from behind. Ah, how their first strokes made those sinners lift their heels. Indeed, no sinner waited for a second stroke to fall, or for a third. And as I moved ahead, my eyes met those of someone else, and suddenly I said... I was not spared the sight of him before. Okay, so um, this is how. This is what keeps them in line. This is what keeps them moving. They're being whipped with enormous whips by horned demons. That's new. We haven't seen any, like, normal demons yet. We've seen demons, but we've not seen normal demons Right? The, the, the ones who would you'd normally expect to find in hell. The ones you usually find in hell in other depictions of the afterlife uh, that we see in the Middle Ages. Um, horned demons. Yes, they are already normal at this time, Serena. Horned demons are already pretty normal. Um, that's, um, yeah, that the, that the devil has horns and hooves is, is established already. Um, I don't know when that was established. That's a really interesting question and I don't know the answer, but I know it is established by now already. Um, and this is where even holding pitchforks, there's a reason that demons hold, you know why they hold pitchforks? They hold pitchforks because they, they like stick people with it and use it to like, you know, roast them over the fire like hot dogs or, or marshmallows, um, usually. Like, that's often why they do that kind of thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, so so these are, these are sort of normal demons. Now, why is that, do you think? Why do you think, why, why, do, you, why do you think that is? 
No, I don't think, Serena, the mistranslation of uh, Moses having horns, I don't think that factors into it. I mean, you know, Moses, one of the good guys, uh, definitely, you know, taken up to paradise with Jesus already, so uh, not demonic down here in the afterlife. Um What um, what do we make of this? What do we make of... So, what I mean by that is... Not, again, I'm not asking a historical question about, you know, what makes this picture of demons normal. The whipping demons here. These don't have pitchforks yet. Um, no, what I'm asking about is, why this now? We had demons before. But the demons we met before were like Cerberus. Cerberus was a demon. Um, Plutus was a demon. Uh, uh, what's his face? The guy in the boat in the swamp. Totally blanking. Began with a PH, and I'm completely forgetting him. Um, anyway, he was a demon. I'm guessing, like, the Minotaur? We were not really sure whether he was a demon or whether he was a, a shade, exactly. Um, uh... Yeah. Anyway, we um we've gone away from the mythological characters, and we just have straight up normal Judeo-Christian demons down here. That seems like it's important that in the circle of fraud. We have straightforward demons, honest demons. I, I don't know if that's quite if that's quite fair. Um, does that suggest that the ones outside of here were fraudulent or unfraudulent, perhaps, or or you know, is there some kind of link? I mean, there seems to be some kind of very indirect link being established in one direction or another between the mythological stories and fraud. Um, I certainly can't think that uh, he's just run out of mythological figures to describe, right? Uh, there's still plenty. Uh, fraud was a thing that happened. In fact, it's almost, I think, specially conspicuous. We don't, we haven't yet seen what the sin in this circle is, um, but um, we'll get there. And spoiler: when we get there we'll see that there are lots of options here. We could have gone mythological in any one of a hundred different directions. Um, finding mythological figures, not just human figures, but like divine, uh, you know, from, from mythology like Plutus or, or like Cerberus or something like that. To fit this theme of the first pouch here, of the first trench, that would have been trivial. Trivial. Um, yeah, David says, I think if we were going to see demons anywhere, it would be among the violent against God. Yeah, yeah, David, that is interesting. Um, like, footnote there, right? Notice whom we didn't meet 
in among the blasphemers, staring up at God and defying him. Satan, right? I mean, you know, sight unseen. One might have expected that, right? If you had just, if you hadn't attached them to numbers, like the numbers of the circles, if you just kind of listed in alphabetical order or something like that, um, the sins, like even the individual sub-sins, right, in each section, so you know, like blasphemy and stuff separately. Um, if you listed those and then asked somebody to guess, where is Satan? I think I might have guessed among the blasphemer, against the defiant against God. Sounds right. Seems to track, right? But that's not where he is. That's not where, that's not where Satan is. Um... See, I don't think Sylvia and a couple others are suggesting perhaps he's depicting, he's suggesting that this kind of depiction of demons is itself fraudulent. That this down here in the circle of fraud is sort of the fake um, depiction of, you know, the, the sort of the fake version, right? This is uh, um, the untrue version of, uh, of, of demons. They're really the mythological, you know, they, they're, they, in truth, they are, you know, like the, the, the gods and figures of, uh, of, of mythology. They're not actually like this. Um, but I'm not sure. I, 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 I don't, I rather doubt that. Um, one of the things that strikes me here, if we had to say, if we kind of leave aside for a second normal demons or traditional demons. Like, leave aside the tradition, leave aside, like, our expectations and stuff, and instead look at merely the depiction, right? What we got before were demons that were being associated with mythological stories. What we're getting here, apart from the horns, are anthropomorphic demons, basically. And what are they doing? They are whipping the spirits. So they're the punishers. They're the wardens of hell here. Right? They're the wardens and the shades are the inmates. I, not, they're in hell too, the demons are in hell. People, I, modern people often forget this. Right? That hell is not the, you know, stomping grounds of the demons. You know, it's not the domain of the demons. It's the prison of the demons. It is the punishment. It was designed primarily for to be the punishment for the demons. Um, as we will see, in fact, hell was created in the act of punishing the demons. Um, there's no, there's, it, it's the link between hell and punishing demons is closer even than a a merely uh, sort of causal relationship of that kind. Um, so, the demons are in hell too. The demons are part of the hellish apparatus on the one hand, like we already saw with Cerberus. He's punishing the shades, and yet he himself is clearly guilty of the same sin and being and, and being punished in the same circle for the same sin. Um, what are these? What are they? Yes, they're whipping the people and making them run. So they are, in this sense inflicting their punishment upon them, right? But the picture that we have um, is of 
them. And it's true, Stephen, they're generic rather than specifically, like they don't have names. They're not associated with particular names or stories, and that's true. So instead what we see is this image of horned demons lashing the people and making them run. And if we think of the pattern that we've seen to this point about how the punishments in hell tend to be this continuation, this perpetuation of the punishments, of the sins rather, right? Of the sins that were committed. Is he suggesting that these people in the sins that they committed were being also sort of egged on, whipped along by demons in their sinning as well? Were the demons also implicated in a sense, involved in the sin in the first place while these people were in the flesh such that that relationship um, I can't help but think of the whipping along um, as being it seems very like the kind of role that demons uh, are described as playing uh, in um, in the Christian tradition uh, to incite to sin, uh, to encourage and push people along into sin and get them to commit themselves deeper and deeper into sin. That's, that's what temptation is. That's what demons do uh, in all of the stories. Um, and that's what we, in a sense, what we see them doing here. Um, are they just doing God's work, right? I am the instrument of the Almighty inflicting punishment upon them? I don't think. It's just that. Again, I think they're part of this whole system here. And therefore, um, in... <laughs> yes, Carita says, cardio is hellish torture. I'm with Dante on that point. Um, yeah, anyway, so it just it's, it strikes me that this seems to be more of that kind of situation. So rather than Cerberus, who is an exemplar, Right, And we'll get a classical exemplar of the sin in this pocket in just a little bit. Um, but the demons are not being put forward. They're not, Stephen, as you said, they're generic. They're not identified. Right, They're not being put forward as particular exemplars. They don't have stories attached to them that illustrate this sin and how you get into trouble doing it. Instead, um, they are... Uh, um, instead, they are... Again, they're just, they're namelessly, almost facelessly, part of the whole system itself. Um, Stephen says, this also makes me think of slave driving or cattle driving. Was this sin something that treated people as chattel? That's a good theory. Um, are, that they are being sort of dehumanized in that way. Um, being driven like herds of beasts. Um is, does that give us an insight into the nature of their sin? I think it might. Um, I think it might. Um, yes, and good. As Serena was thinking, similarly, it's like a reversal of humanity. Humans being whipped up and driven like animals rather than being the drivers. Yes, and instead, Serena, again, it's almost like we're getting... It's almost like a behind-the-scenes glimpse, right? Um, they were acting like... They were acting inhuman, right? They were, uh, I mean, that that's what it means to sin in many ways. Um, and uh, being driven on 
uh, in this way. And now that's, and also, as we'll see, in a sense, driving others. Um, but let's keep going. Okay. And as he spoke, a demon cudgeled him with his horse. So he's talking to this Florentine guy that he's met before, of course. Um, and as he spoke, a demon cudgeled him with his horsewhip and cried, Be off, you pimp! There are no women here for you to trick. I joined my escort once again, and then with but few steps we came upon a place where from the bank a rocky ridge ran out. We climbed quite easily along that height, and turning right upon its jagged back, we took our leave of those eternal circlings. When we had reached the point where that ridge opens below to leave a passage for the lashed, my guide said, Stay and make sure the sight of still more ill-born spirits strikes your eyes, for you have not yet seen their faces since they have been moving in our own direction. So we're going to stop and look at the ones who are coming back the other way. So what is the sin? Yes, um, you're right. The sex traffic, Arthur, is exactly what is happening. That is the perfect characterization of this circle. Um those who are, who have been going in the opposite direction of Dante and Virgil to this point, those that they see that Dante spoke to, um, these are pimps. There are no women here for you to trick. Pimps and panders. Who's going in the other direction? And my good master, though I had not asked, urged me, look at that mighty one who comes and does not seem to shed a tear of pain, how he still keeps the image of a king. That shade is Jason, who with heart and head deprived the men of Colchis of their ram. He made a landfall on the Isle of Lemnos after its women, bold and pitiless, had given all their island males to death. With polished words and love signs he took in Hypsipyle, the girl whose own deception had earlier deceived the other women. And he abandoned her, alone and pregnant. Such guilt condemns him to such punishment. And for Medea, too, revenge is taken. With him go those who cheated so. This is enough for you to know of that first valley and of the souls it clamps within its jaws. Pimps and seducers. Pimps and seducers. So, the first pocket of the Malabolgia, the first section of the circle of fraud is dedicated essentially to womanizers, to men who defraud women sexually. Now, one thing to point out, this is actually one of the first times that sexual sin has even been addressed uh, in Inferno. We talked about how uninterested in the sexual act and sexual sin itself he seemed to be up in the circle of the Sodomites, um, and even how comparatively incidental the actual sect, the, the act of fornication was in the circle of lust. Um, this matters. Now, I would still say this is not what I would call highly sexualized. Right? That is to say, their punishment. Like nothing's like nothing horrible is being done to their genitals or anything like that. And again, like if you say, like, why am I wanting to see that? I'm not saying I am, but I am saying that's common. Right? I mean, demons applying red hot pincers to super uncomfortable parts of people's anatomy is very normal in uh, depictions of the afterlife in the depiction of sexual sin as the, as the punishment of sexual sin. That's like what 
we'd kind of expect. Um, so we don't see that even here, but nevertheless, the sort of sexual context, um, uh, the sexual context of these um, sins, right, of this these acts of fraud, is still nevertheless focused on. Now, David, what an excellent question. Are we to understand that women who seduce men end up somewhere else? Um, they don't end up here. We saw, remember we had like Semiramis and other Cleopatra, right? Cleopatra, um, you know, could come under indictment for seduction, depending on what stories you're reading, right? So, uh, um, but you remember, David, she was up in the second circle, um, not down here. Um, there does seem to be a certain amount of gender discrimination here in this circle. Um, Medea is mentioned, Brandon, but I believe it is Jason's sin against Medea, right? For Medea too, revenge is taken against Jason. Jason abandoned her too, right? I mean, like he married her, but then he abandoned her for someone else, right? Um, for I mean, she took her own revenge for that. Um, but nevertheless, Jason is still guilty. Jason is still being punished. Jason is one of the worst and most famous womanizers in all of Greek mythology. Um, he's got, I think, the worst track record. Oh, gosh, that's a big statement. There's a lot of bad track records um, when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, men doing wrong by women in Greek mythology. But, um, yeah. Oh, what an uncomfortable question, David. Would Aeneas end up here? Well, um, it's awkward, right? Um, if you'd ask Dido, yeah, we'd get a vote for this, right? Dido. She was up there too, wasn't she? Didn't we get Dido in the second circle? Pretty sure we did. Pretty sure we did. Um, but uh, anyway, Jason is notorious. Um, he seduces and abandons at least three different women during the course of his career. Um, I mean, he's a he's a serial seducer and betrayer. Um, yeah, Curita <laughs> says the competition is tight, but Jason places at least. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, no, Christy is not worse than Zeus, but Zeus being not a mortal uh, uh, doesn't make it down here. But see, Christy, that's exactly what I was talking about when I said if we had wanted to find mythological figures to be the demonic, uh, you know, whip wielders, we'd have had plenty of options, right? I mean, if there's any sin that is, you know, um, more... I, I don't know. I mean, I guess, I guess actually maybe rape is even more common than mere seduction and abandonment. Um, but uh, anyway, it's still like we'd have we'd have had candidates, right? We'd have, I don't think he would have struggled to think of an of, of a of a person to put down here. Um, Michelle, great question. Is adultery folded in with these guys, or is it somewhere else? I don't know. I mean. Uh, there, no, there's no specific place for the adulterers. Um, well, I think we... Hmm. Jason and Medea suggests that they would be here. 
at least that men who abandon their wives, men who run out on their wives, um, uh, would be here. Um, we did definitely see some adulterers among the lustful, but again, there's lots of overlap, David. I agree. Yeah, it's not that there were... But I don't think there's a specially designated place. What I'm trying to remember is, does adultery count as a ninth circle thing? Because remember, fraud against strangers versus uh, fraud against, um, you know, those who trust you. Um, so, uh, you know, one could easily make the argument that adultery would put you one step further downstairs. Um, whereas seduction, like, you know, meeting a girl at a bar and seducing her and then abandoning her and betraying her gets you here because uh, she was a stranger, just like Hypsipyle is the primary example that's given for Jason Medea's mentioned, but she's not the, uh, the primary one here. Um, it is, uh, uh, it is Hypsipyle and Medea is, um, Medea's mentioned because she's kind of, um, well, really, she's the same kind of example. I mean, she also was seduced by Jason. It's just that he didn't abandon her for a while, right? I mean, he seduced her, uh, got her to help him overcome the challenges to get the Golden Fleece. Then he did, in fact, take her away. He didn't just abandon her on the spot like he did Hypsipyle. Um, he did, in fact follow through on his initial promise to take her away with him, and he took her back home and they had kids, and then he abandoned her after that. Um, so it's kind of a the same exact pattern of seduction and abandonment, just with a sort of a delayed action uh, there in the middle. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and no, you're absolutely right. I mean, you're always going to be able to find example of Examples of people who are guilty of this, but who are in other places. This is g frequent, right? This is going to be frequent. It's one of the, this is why Minos gets paid the big bucks, right? Because he's got to decide. And I don't know the basis on which he decides, because there are obviously some people who are guilty of multiple things, right? Um, and yet one of those things is sort of chosen and they end up in this particular place. Um, with Jason, I'm saying that's a good call. I think that uh, uh, he's 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 right on it. Um, exactly, Stephen. That's why he's the judge and I'm not, right? I am no threat to Minus's uh, position in the underworld because I don't know how he does it. Um, but yeah, yeah. So you're definitely going to find other examples. Um, what is clear, especially when we're talking about mythological figures, that is, figures with, you know... Um, you know, poetic stories behind them. Um, it's like what they're primarily famous for. Uh, so, you know, Jocelyn, you mentioned um, Odysseus, right? We are going to meet Odysseus. Um, Odysseus, did he commit adultery? Yeah, yeah, sure, he did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but that's not what he's famous for, right? Jason, he is famous for seducing women and abandoning it. That's like his whole shtick. Um, and he does it multiple times. So, so yeah. So that one seems... I'm with Minus on that one. Um, uh, but anyway. Back to the gender discrimination thing. Back to the fact that it seems to be men. Uh, the pimping and the, and the seduction of women by men. Um, I wonder if that tells us something 
of the nature of fraud, perhaps? Of what we're talking about when we're talking about fraud like this? What I mean is, the dynamic is different, right? There seems to me here an acknowledgement of the power differential, right? Of the privileged position that men are in. Um, it's not the same thing. A woman who seduces a man and abandons him, and a man who seduces a woman and abandons her, those are not symmetrical sins. Not in this society, for sure. Do you see what I mean? Um, and so, therefore, I would, I would want to think a little bit more about what that suggests, what that difference kind of points to um, in, uh, in the nature of fraud that he's trying to... Uh, um, that he's trying to get at. So, uh, that's a tough one, David. Uh, David is thinking about the importance of virginity and chastity um, and how much that is prized among women, but much less so among men. Yes and no. Yes, that's true on a worldly level, right? Like, nobody cares if a man is a virgin when he gets married. Right, you don't ruin yourself as a potential future marriage partner if you have sex as a man, but you do as a woman. Right, so in that sense, absolutely, there is that much much higher uh, focus placed upon female virginity in a worldly context, but spiritually, not so. Um, virginity was a really big deal, but it. it from the standpoint of spiritual virtue, it was just as big a deal for men as for women. There was not a distinction really made in that way. Think about, think about, um, I, for those of you who did uh, Mallory with me, good, yeah, Stephen, you were already thinking about that. Absolutely. Um, Galahad is a virgin and has to be a virgin. It would have been a huge deal uh, if Galahad had, you know, Galahad and, and uh, Percival's sister were l literally the match made in heaven, right? But they both died virgins. Um, and, that's a, and that's a good thing, right? In both uh, of their cases. Um, so, um, I, so, so, yeah, no, it's... A, in as much as virginity is connected with spiritual purity... Um, it is at least, it's just as important. I don't, I won't say at least as important. I mean, remember, that's the whole point of clerical celibacy. That's why priests are supposed to be unmarried and virginal. Like, that's what's supposed to happen. And there's a reason for that ideal. So, again, I'm not, I'm not talking about practice versus, uh, versus ideals here. Um, I'm talking about it, whether or not it's, it's so in that way, no, again, practically speaking on a worldly level, female virginity is much more important. Yes, but not spiritually. Um, it is not a graver spiritual sin for a woman to lose her virginity than for a man to lose his virginity in a, in a, not that losing your virginity is inappropriate if you get married, but if you're not married, it's a big deal. Um, so, so yeah, that, that wasn't really a difference. Um, but um, 
but Carita, I, I'm thinking in the same kind of ways that you are there. Carita says, you know, men in this time could bounce back from an unfaithful woman, but a woman's whole life can be ruined, even if we look at it from a purely financial aspect. Yes, going back to those worldly consequences, if you as a man seduce a woman, uh, you know, seduce a girl uh, and abandon her, you have committed a crime against her, which is unlike anything a woman can do to a man. Um, In exactly that way, Karita, in that sense, there is... I don't want to say a higher responsibility, but again, it makes, it makes sense to me. If a woman and a man who are seducing and then going to abandon, right? Female and masculine sed- seducers might be equally deceptive. They might be equally false, right? They might be equally grasping and whatever. Um, but they're still not... They haven't done the same thing, if you see what I mean. For exactly the reason that Karita is saying, um, the man is just not damaged in the same way as... Now, again, spiritually, yeah, sure. Um, He's not a virgin anymore, um, and that's a big deal. It's not that nothing has been taken from him, but it's not the same as it is. And one of the things that this... um, uh, One of the things that this kind of suggests to me is that fraud at least you know it's a one little conclusion or one suggestion perhaps to draw out of this depiction uh, from the first pocket here is that it's not just about fakery now there's fakery involved all over the place here right if you're pimping a woman in many cases you're lying to the woman right you've set the woman up for this um not just in the sense that you've literally made her into a prostitute and, you know, you have offered her for money, um, but in other more uh, uh, indirect ways. Um, the kinds of men uh, who are in, you know, among the pimps down there, again, are not just people who actually worked with literal prostitutes, but people who, like, allowed people to sleep with their daughters in order to gain personal um, uh, uh personal advantages for themselves or their families, right? That that kind of thing. That would be pimping in exactly this sense, right? And so is there fraud in the sense of lying, in the sense of deception happening there? Very possibly there is, right? Um, and certainly, almost certainly, there is in the case of the seducers as well. Um, lying going on, deception going on. But it strikes me that if that were the essence of the thing, then why wouldn't there be women down here too? Um, because presumably women who seduce men do just as much deceiving and lying as uh, the men who deceive, who uh, uh, seduce women. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's, I don't, I don't think that the, what I'm seeing here is not, is that it's not necessarily primarily about deception. Um, but the women are being defrauded in a different sense, Right. Um, they are being offered something which is fake, which is fraudulent. In the case of the seducers, they are being offered, you know, essentially they're being offered marriage or something like marriage, and then they're not being given it, right? Um, 
the same could be said of the women who are being pimped uh, in uh, in the other way. Uh, and you're right, Kit, that a man who seduces a woman in this way has done something akin to murder. It's not murder. You could easily put these guys into the violent against others. Definitely. Um, they could go there. But this is special. Um, exactly, David. I'm wondering about that. Um, this circle is not about inducing others to sin so much as about the worldly damage done to them. Yes, I think so. I think so. It's not just... Yes, exactly. It's not that they have morally debauched these women and done damage to them, you know, physically, sexually, spiritually, um, but that they have committed... They've defrauded them um, in this other way, which seems to be... I want to say primarily a worldly way. Um, that might be too strong a way to um, to put it. But something something like that? Um, they certainly have. The women have certainly been deprived of any opportunity to take their rightful place in society forever. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I mean, this imbalance, this imbalance between... Um, masculine and feminine consequences of sex, right, is a huge thing all the way up until birth control, right? Birth control changes that situation to some, a good deal, actually. Um, and it's kind of hard even to imagine the old world um, uh, to some extent. But yeah, it was really a big deal uh, in that way. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I do think, as Nadia on YouTube was uh, suggesting and um, uh, Michael, as you were kind of pointing to before, the um, the kind of deeper responsibility that uh, men men are supposed to be the guardians of women. Um, I mean, you know, people like to, uh, you know, when talking about the Middle Ages, like to you know go back and talk about how you know they considered women property, like you were the property of your father until you were married, and then you become the property of your husband, and that's all perfectly true and unpleasant in lots of ways. But there is a flip side to that, which is that the men were under they had the responsibility; they were supposed to be caring for those people and that and those roles, husband and father, right. Those are exactly the two roles that are being subverted by the two crowds of guys in this circle, right? The seducers are the fraudulent husbands, right? And the pimps are the fraudulent fathers who did not, you know, or again, in like sort of in that in that guardian-like position, they are not protecting the women, the girls who are in their, under their protection. And instead, they are pimping them out, right, in one way or another. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, interesting. Stephen says, thinking of the chattel thing, like going back to the, the cattle driving that we were talking about. When a woman seduces a man, Stephen says, it's often because of his position or influence, like she's trying to gain something uh, from it. When a man seduces a woman, it's often because of how little he values her as anything except an object. Yeah, I agree. Again, given the nature of the, like given the the way that these different roles work in society, um, uh, it it is true that uh, the again there's just a different the two different kinds of seduction um, 
masculine seduction or feminine seduction just have very different dynamics uh, there. They, they do point in different directions that way. Um, a man doesn't seduce a woman. Jason, you know, I mean, does he do it for his own ends? Well, in the sense that he's trying to, it's a, it's a means to an end to convince her to help him, right? Like with Medea, for instance. Um, uh, but, but yes, there is something dehumanizing about it, right? I am, the male seducer is using the woman as a means to an end. The male pimp is explicitly using the woman as a means to an end, whether it's money or whether it's political or whatever, right? Um, so there is, they have been guilty of that act of dehumanization. Um, and of course, it's not to say that a woman seducing a man isn't dehumanizing, um, but it's not dehumanizing in the same way, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, I agree, Karita. If we ignore who holds the power in a situation, we miss out on why some things are so much grosser than others. Yes, yes, yes. Agreed, agreed. Um, uh, okay, let's keep going. We heard the people whine in the next pouch and heard them as they snorted with their snouts. We heard them use their palms to beat themselves and exhalations rising from below stuck to the banks, encrusting them with mold and so waged war against both eyes and nose. The bottom is so deep we found no spot to see it from except by climbing up the arch until the bridge's highest point. This was the place we reached. The ditch beneath held people plunged in excrement that seemed as if it had been poured from human privies. Okay, so we've got the people who are plunged in excrement. That image of the exhalations, right? The noxious fumes that are rising from... Uh, uh, from from the excrement, right? Uh, and the, the fumes themselves stick to the banks and encrust them. We've got like solidified crystals of stench, right? Around the, 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 uh, the, the walls of this pit. It's amazing. Um, and yes, Stephen points out that whining and snorting with, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, with their snouts, we are... They sound like pigs. Yes, I think that it is, that is invoking uh, the image of uh, of pigs there. So we have once again bestial dehumanized. So there's a trend already, right? Both of the uh, those who have been guilty of fraud that we've met so far are both being dehumanized, treated like beasts, right? Whipped like herd animals uh, in uh, in the first pocket. Um, rooting around in the muck uh, like pigs uh, in the second pocket. I think that that's um, that's that seems very right. And yeah, yeah, David, I couldn't help but think of the bog of eternal stench uh, uh, from Labyrinth. Definitely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, this is, I think a sort of specially horrifying kind of, uh, uh, kind of punishment here. So what are they guilty of? What sin is being so poignantly and aromatically perpetuated here? 
Then he continued, pounding on his pate, I am plunged here because of flatteries, of which my tongue had such sufficiency, at which my guide advised me, See you thrust your head a little farther to the front, so that your eyes can clearly glimpse the face of that besmirched, bedraggled harridan, who scratches at herself with shit-filled nails, and now she crouches, now she stands upright. That is Tice, the harlot who returned her lover's question, Are you very grateful to me? by saying, Yes, enormously. And now our sight has had its fill of this. Um, I, I, Dante uses a lot of rude words uh, in this. He's, um, he does not use polite circumlocutions uh, in this um, in this circle, uh, in this pocket. And I think that that's um, rather apt, right? Um, Sugarcoating the description with flowery language seems like perhaps a bad idea uh, in the pouch of flattery, perhaps. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) Right. Devorah said, Dante said that there was no punishment more disgusting back when he saw the people wallowing in the mud up in the third circle. Uh, He might have changed that opinion by now. It's true. That was early days, Devorah, right? Um, uh, He was uh, perhaps naive when he said that at that point. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, So... couple things here. First, it's fascinating to see how persistent this image is, right? Uh, They didn't associate it, apparently, especially with bulls, (laughs) like we do. Uh, You know, they didn't talk about the excrement of bulls, uh, like we do, but but, uh, the association um, between you know, shit and flatteries, you know, between excrement and lies uh, is has been very stable. Uh, there are a lot of values that have changed. There are a lot of, um, uh, uh, you know, the, both the ways that people are punished or what seems to be the natural outflowing of their sin or expression of their sin uh, to Dante that seems strange or alien to the way that we understand things. This one, I think, is... I think of all of the punishments in Inferno, this is the one that feels most natural uh, from a modern perspective, and I find that kind of interesting. And yes, Sarah, you're right, the, pa- the other passage was reminiscent of pigs, but this is even more so. Um, yes, yes. Um, uh, and good, Note Stephen notes that we have male and female um, sinners here. Um, uh Let's see, Arthur, yeah, the translation, the word that's being translated as shit here is uh, mierda. I think it's like the same word as like the French word merd. Uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's definitely the best translation, the closest translation for that word. Uh, I think no question. Um, but, um, but yeah, anyway, Stephen, you were saying there are male and female sinners here. Yes, that's important. And not only that, notice the female sin is explicitly in a sexual context, right? It's a harlot who is being uh, punished here for flattery. Now, of course, 
your footnotes might tell you that this was Dante perhaps misunderstanding or misreading his original source. And he's kind of doing the character of Tice wrong here, perhaps. But but I'm uh, less worried about that. What I think is more interesting, I guess sort of accepting the story as Dante relates it here, um, a prostitute flattering her lover um, uh, is what gets her here, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, William Coley says Longfellow has filthy nails. Yes, Longfellow was um, being indirect. Um, it's uh, if you look at the Italian, you can you can see the word. It's 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 there. It's there. Um, um, yeah, yeah. So. Um, I'm not sure what to make of the sexual context of the flattery that Thais the harlot is offering to her lover here. Um, or how literally to take the flattery. But um, in any case, uh, that is to say, is it a dirty joke? It might be a dirty joke. If this were Shakespeare, it would obviously be a dirty joke. I mean, Shakespeare never saw any passage on anything he couldn't turn into a dirty joke. Um, uh, does Dante mean it as an off-color joke? I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, David, I agree that putting the prostitute, the victim of the pimp, in the next circle over is rather uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, it does show you know, harlots are not necessarily all innocent victims, right? Um, they, uh, just because their pimps are guilty, like, you know, people who pimp women, men who pimp women are guilty in this particular way, um, doesn't, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that um, the women thus pimped are or remain themselves innocent. Um, yeah. Um, so what does this tell us? On the one hand, it's interesting that we didn't start with flattery. Because on the one hand, you would think flattery is one of the simplest, clearest I almost said cleanest, but obviously not. Um, clearest examples of fraud, right? Someone who's just speaking that which is untrue, trying to convince somebody of something, you know, that they think something that they don't, um, for gain, right? I mean, that's fraud, sure. Like, it's almost like a paradigmatic example of fraud, you'd say. So there's no problems at all here. But it's a little bit more interesting in conjunction with what we saw previously, right? And my suspicions that fraud isn't just about, like, is there deception here? Yes, obviously, right? Is untruth being presented? Is there, is there, are there lies and deception happening? Of course. Um, that's essential, that's essential to the nature of this. But that doesn't convince me 
that it's all about that of course flattery and it's not a this is not liars right this is not the circle of the liars this is the circle of the flatterers in particular and flattery are a particular kind of lie right lies designed to gain you something right you are you flatter you flatter for a, you might lie you might lie for fun maybe um uh, or out of some other kind of malice in order to do harm to somebody else. You flatter for a particular reason, right? You, 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 you have an end in mind um, when, you, um, when you flatter. Um, and um, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, Michael says the other choice that is for the prostitutes may have been bad, even as bad as death, but they did choose. Yeah. There are lots of stories of virtuous girls who are raped and then die. Um, uh, being the victim of a rape does not necessarily make you bad. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, no, that, but, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a, there's a whole tradition. There's a, there's a whole poetic tradition, um, about that. Um, but yes, exactly, Gerald. You flatter in order to defraud someone of something. You are committing an act. And so once again, fraud is not just about I am putting a false face out there, right? Yes, you're certainly doing that with flattery. Um, but defrauding in the sense of getting something from somebody, right? Getting something from somebody in an inappropriate way, in a bad way. Um, so in other words... One of the ways in which I would characterize the pattern that we're seeing so far is that fraud is not just about you. It's not just like, were you truthful, right? Did you show your actual face or did you put on a mask? Um, because if you're putting on a mask, you're committing fraud. It's not, but it's, it's not just about you. It's about how you treat others. It's about what you do to others. It's about what you're trying to get out of others because that is the one thing that all three of them have in common. Like, yes, lies and deception might factor into all three, um, but it seems to me that the core of the three, uh, if we're looking for a pattern among these, the pimps, the seducers, and the flatterers, it is folks who are getting something out of someone, who are seeking their own gain, who are victimizing other people for their own gain. Um, let's see if that holds up. Let's keep going. Oh, Simon Magus, oh, his sad disciples, rapacious ones who take the things of God that ought to be the brides of righteousness and make them fornicate for gold and silver. The time has come to let the trumpet sound for you. Your place is here in this third pouch. Okay, Simon Magus and his sad disciples. Here's another Bible quiz, folks. Simon Magus. Who is Simon Magus and what was he guilty of? He was so guilty he got a sin named after him. That's pretty special. The sin of simony. Thank you, Bruce, for congratulating me on making it to my background. We did it. 19th Canto. How about that? Exactly. Okay, so Simon Magus, um, when 
was it Peter and Peter and John? I think it was Peter and John. When Peter and John went out on the road, uh, right, and they were meeting um, this group of people who had converted to Christianity, but the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon them. They didn't speak in tongues. There were no manifestations of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit among them, like as had happened among the uh, disciples at Pentecost and such. Uh, so, um, the, the Spirit hadn't come. So Peter and John lay their hands upon these new-made Christians, and the Holy Spirit does descend upon them, and they start speaking in tongues. And Simon Magus had been a wizard. He had been a sorcerer. He'd been a a professional. It's actually a little bit unclear as to whether he had been a deceiver of people or whether he actually had some kind of arcane power. Um, but in any case, he watches this perform. He had converted. He too was uh, was impressed, um, and he had converted officially to Christianity. And he sees Peter. Uh, yes, sorry, Peter and John uh, laying their hands on people and the Holy Spirit descending upon them. And he offers them money. He's like, dude, you got to teach me that one, right? I'll give you money if you show me how to do that. Um, and Peter says, thy money perish with thee and cast him out. Um, and, uh, and you know, say, you know, thy money perish with thee for thy, th- for, you know, uh, you know for, because you thought that the, you know, the, the power of the spirit could be purchased with money. That is simony. So sim- the sin of simony is taking money or seeking money in exchange for spiritual good. That's what simony is. Simony was a big old sin in the Middle Ages. Boy, like accusations of simony got thrown around all over the place. Um, uh, Okay, so the sad disciples of Simon Magus are, of course, those modern people who are still uh, doing this. So, um, simony, of course, is this, uh, um, Martin Luther was kind of down on the sin of simony, right? This was one of the issues that he was having. This is kind of one of the things that led to the Protestant Reformation. Um, the whole idea of paying for indulgences, right? So if you were guilty of sin and you could pay a certain amount of money to the church and, uh, you would, uh, then receive an indulgence, which would, um, you know, kind of write off your sin. Um, People are like, dude, simony right there in front of us. Um, yeah, Jocelyn is saying, is it not the same as selling indulgences? Yep, that's exactly the people who are opposed to selling indulgences. That's exactly what they. Um, that's exactly what they characterized it. Um, okay, so um, yeah, and Bruce was just saying this must have been Martin Luther's favorite circle of hell. Yeah, exactly. I would think so. Um, Rapacious ones who take the things of God that ought to be the brides of righteousness and make them fornicate for gold and silver. Now, isn't that interesting uh, that he's using sexualized language again? Rapacious, right? They are raping something. Um, the bride, they ought to be the, uh, who take the things of God that ought to be the brides of righteousness and make them fornicate for gold and silver. So, oh wait, so they're pimps as well, right? They pimp out the brides of righteousness. How does that work? Why are we talking about brides here? What's the, what's up with the bride reference? What does that have to do with it? 
context? Why is this an apt metaphor? Yes, because the church, holistically understood, is the bride of Christ. Um, the human soul is the bride of Christ. Um, the um, conversion, being a Christian means being the bride of Christ. And that's not a gender thing. All Christians, male and female, are the brides of Christ. Um, so, yes, there are a couple different issues here, right? Um, if you are a church official, right? If you are a prelate and you are receiving money in exchange for spiritual things, like indulgences or like positions of spiritual power, um, you know, bishoprics and stuff like that, um, taking bribes to name an archbishop or whatever, you're guilty of simony. This is where you go, right? But metaphorically, you're also guilty. You know, he's linking it back to the sins that we've already seen, right? Um, you are also like a pimp because you're supposed to be leading. You're, 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 you're an example to the Christian people, right? You're an example to the laity in the church. And you are pimping the laity, um, you're making them fornicate for gold and silver. Um, that is very, very bad. That is very bad. Um, okay. The time has come to let the trumpet sound. Um, yeah, you know, Arthur, you are absolutely right. Nobody talks about this sin these days. Simony is really unpopular. Um, Those of you who um, are Jane Austen fans may remember that, uh, what did they call? What does Jane Austen call a, uh, a position? If you have a position, you know, you're the, you're the, you're the priest of a parish church. What's it called? What do you get? Remember the word that she used to describe it? She called it a living, right? It's a living. It was, it was financially defined. It had a certain income, right? You'd have a good living, which means that the tithes from that parish were pretty rich, like rich people lived there. So therefore, the tithes, which you were obligated to give by law, um, uh, amounted to a large amount. So. It was a pretty rich living, so if you wanted to get that living, you would, you'd you'd have to pay for it. Um, simony was like um, uh, official. <laughs> like, it's, it's like the way nobody talked about simony by the time we got to the 19th century. Um, and people don't talk about it anymore. Um, but this was a big, huge deal in the Middle Ages. And for Dante, we're really striking home here. Because remember, Dante's enemy number one right, uh, is the Pope. Um, the current Pope uh, is the guy who banished him uh, and uh, his number one political enemy. I agree, Sarah. Uh, Mr. Collins is a really wonderful combination, right, of uh, simony, of your flattery. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, classic flatterer. Um, though he's kind of pitiful. Uh, anyway, 
I'm not sure he would end up here, actually, but who knows? Um, uh, yeah, so, okay. Um, who is Pope? Oh, we're getting there, William. We're getting there. The time has come to let the trumpet sound for you. Your place is here in this third pouch. Notice the rhetoric here. These are the first lines. Oh, si look at the number of times the word oh is used in our translation, right? Um, these are, poetically speaking, what are called apostrophes, right? When you start something with the, with the letter O like that, when you address, you know, an abstract thing, or to, oh, Simon Magus, oh, his sad disciples, um, the time has come to let the trumpet sound for you. This is really, really high rhetoric. This is very grandiose. Um, and it happens quite a bit in this stanza. Oh, highest wisdom. It happens again right away there in line 10. Oh, highest wisdom. How much art you show in heaven, earth, and this sad world below, that is in hell. How just your power is when it allots. Okay, so he's apostrophizing the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God in the art that he shows in heaven, earth, and the sad world below, how just your power is when it allots. The artifice of God is what he apostrophizes here. How just, how appropriate is the artifice of God, as shown, specifically illustrated, by the pouch of the Simonists. Um, remember when we were talking about the artificial? versus the natural at the beginning. That's interesting, isn't it? Um, drawing attention to God's artifice. Of course, nature is the artifice of God. Um, uh, but again, I just, I, I, that seems interesting. Um, but okay, so Dante, what is it that you find so just, so apt? Um, along the sides and down along the bottom, I saw that livid rock was perforated. The openings were all one width and round. They did not seem to me less broad or more than those that in my handsome San Giovanni were made to serve as basins for baptizing. And one of these, not many years ago, I broke for someone who was drowning in it. And let this be my seal to set men straight. Okay, let's try to do that step by step. The very just artifice of the Almighty in designing this circle of this pouch of hell um, has there are holes, little round holes, and the round holes in the ground are exactly the same size as the holes that serve as basins for baptizing in one of the churches in Florence. Okay. So let's, let's just stop there for a second. The Simonists are being shoved head down into things which are like baptismal fonts. How is that apt? How is that just? Why are we associating the baptismal fonts with the Simonists? I keep almost saying the popes because there are a bunch of popes here. Uh, this is the most uh, highly 
Here you go, Arthur. One of the most highly populated uh, circles uh, in all of hell. Um, baptismal fonts. Why baptismal fonts? What's the what's the significance of the baptismal fonts? Why does that connect here? Well, let's think about baptism. Um, yeah, think about baptism and what it does. Um, David says it's like an inversion of baptism. Fire is poured over instead of water. Yep, yep. Um, there's, there's an anointing, but it's an anointing with fire instead of with water. Where do you anoint? Remember, we're Catholic still, right? So um, we're Catholic still, so uh, how do you do? The, we, we baptize babies. What do you do? How do you do it? Yeah, you anoint the head with water, right? You anoint the head with the water from the baptismal font, right? And so these guys, it's completely upside down, right? They're hanging head downwards, and their feet are anointed by fire, right? Okay. Um, exactly. Yeah, if you're thinking about dunking, Sarah, yes, exactly. You're thinking like a Protestant. Um, now, when we think about baptismal fonts, we think about babies. Absolutely. Um, and yes, Stephen, good. Absolutely. Uh, tongues of flame uh, uh, on the tops of things should absolutely remind us of Pentecost. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles like tongues of flame which descend upon their heads. Here we have tongues of... And, and Pentecost is super important because that's like... the the birthday of the church, right? Uh, the church has its beginning as a church, as an institution on Pentecost, right? That's the, that's day one of the life of the church. Um, when the tongues of flame descended and landed upon the heads of the apostles, and now these Simonists, many of whom are popes, are upside down and the tongues of flame are descending instead on their feet, or rising actually from their feet, Right. Um, so again, it's and it's not in Revelation and uh, the speaking of words of power, uh, but instead uh, it is in torment. Right. Um, and yes, Carrie, when bapt when a child is baptized, the ba the child is being baptized brought into that church. Right. That's the that's the 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 sort of the, the birth moment, the, the rebirth moment. Um, you're born the first time and then you get born again real quick, uh, right? Just a couple days later, you get born again uh, into the church uh, and being brought into that. So it's like that, that moment of transition, right? The baptismal font represents that transition uh, from being outside the church to being inside the church. And they're being stuffed head down into these font they're not actual fonts right so these are not literally baptismal fonts they're being stuffed into these are holes which merely happen to be the same size as baptismal fonts um, but of course we're being invited to uh, remember that um, uh, yeah yeah um, and good yes Sarah it is he does talk about oil as well like um, the flames that are on their feet 
are like the um, uh, are like flames that 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 dance over the surface of oil, right? Good. Tell tell me about oil. How is oil relevant? Uh, if you're a pope, for instance, wh- what do we do with oil in Christian ceremonies? Again, I know this is a bit of a strain, perhaps for Protestants. Uh, yeah, anointing with oil. Who gets anointed? Anointed with oil. Priests get anointed with oil. It's part of the consecration, like the, uh, you know, when you are uh, uh, when you are ordained. It's 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 part of the ordination, um, uh, the anointing of the forehead and the head with oil. Um, so again, once again, an inversion right there. So they're they're priests, um, and so they have been anointed. Um, but it's like the anointing oil itself is on fire. But again, it's upside down. It's on their feet instead of their heads. Um, uh, so we've got all of those things coming together there. Um, yes, Bruce, there's a whole, there's a great deal of uh, um, anointing with oil uh, in the Old Testament. Yeah, and that that was taken into the <clears throat> priestly ceremonies. Um Yes, yes. Um, okay, so... Now, so we can see how all of these different ideas about... Um, and again, it's all these like transitional ideas, right? Um, recalling the ceremonies to make someone a priest. Recalling the ceremonies by which one enters the body of Christ, becomes the bride of Christ, right? Um, through baptism. Um uh, the you know, Pentecost in the beginning of the church, all of these things. Um, you're also anointed with oil, of course, during the during last rites uh, before you die, which is also, uh, of course, uh, another of the sacraments. Um, remember, uh, the Catholics have seven, uh, so if you're a Protestant, uh, you might not be familiar with all the sacraments. Um, uh, we always got to remember that. Uh, but anyway. Um, so we have all of this sacramental stuff, um, and it's turned literally on its head, uh, and it's being turned instead of blessing into punishment. That seems to be the kind of thing that Dante's talking about with the artistry of the highest wisdom, uh, which is uh, uh, allotting punishment uh, justly through its power. Now, why the anecdote about saving somebody from drowning? I don't know who was drowning. Um, again, this is not a dunking ceremony, so somebody must have either fallen into the font or, uh, or, or uh, dropped the baby into the font, or I'm not really sure. Uh, but Dante claims to have saved their lives by breaking the font, breaking the font for someone who is drowning in it. And let this be my seal to set men straight. So I guess I understand that... Um, he was getting flack for this, like that this was maybe part of an indictment against him, that he was being accused of, um, uh, uh, you know, desecration uh, of the church, right? By shattering, you know, because he, he broke a baptismal font and this was, uh, you know, this was uh, a, 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 a un- unholy and criminal act. And he's like, somebody was drowning. I was saving their life. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah.